Amen and amen. He surrounds us. He restores our soul. He will never let us go. Isn't that right, TBC? Well, this morning, we've demonstrated that we actually believe that by singing to each other, by hearing from God's word together, by reminding ourselves of his promises, by, by celebrating even what God is doing in and through us. And now, in this part of our service, I want us to step in into another rhythm of reminding ourselves and declaring that we believe that God is who he says he is, that demonstrates that belief in a tangible way by showing our gratitude. Specifically, I want us to take a moment to thank God and to trust God by giving. And, and when we give, and I've talked about this before, I'll say it a little bit differently this time just to keep you guys engaged. When we give, this isn't just some tax-deductible giving that we're doing. This isn't just to fund ministry. When we give, it's about bringing our gift to the ultimate gift giver. It is about reflecting the reality that he has truly shaped us as a grateful people. And that ultimately our trust is not in our resources, but in our risen Savior. We bring our gift, whether physically to one of the boxes in the back or, or digitally on our website, as an act of worship as a rhythm that reestablishes the truth every time that we give, every time that we worship, that we are indeed a grateful people, that we look like Jesus, that we act like Jesus, that we give like Jesus. And so as we take a moment to, to reflect on that and even to participate in giving, if you're going to pull your phone out or you can do it later, I want us to pray in the midst of that, that all of our rhythms including giving, but, but as we have sung, as we have celebrated, as we've uh, read from God's word, and now it's about, we're about to receive the preached word of God, that every one of these rhythms would continue to help us look like the Jesus that we serve. Would you pray with me? Holy God, through your poet in Psalm 11, you tell us that you are righteous, that you love righteousness, and that the upright will see your face. Oh God, this morning, knowing that, we are grateful for the work of Jesus to make us righteous, to make us upright. We believe in Jesus and we know that in him you have revealed yourself. You have told us who you are. In him we have seen your face. And we confess even though we have done that, even though we believe in Jesus, that there are still times that we struggle. When our vision is obscured by the temptation of sin and we, and we fail to love you, where our actions say that whether we want to or not, that we love our sin more than we love you. And this morning, we confess before you our disordered loves. We confess and we repent, and we pray that you would enable us to grow in our love for you and in our hate for our sin. We trust in the gospel, in the good news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and we remind each other of that good news this morning. But Lord, we praise you this morning also that you didn't stop at preaching the gospel to us, but you have graciously continued the preaching of the gospel through us and through your missionaries all over the world. And so this morning, we pray for Shannon, who went overseas this past month to teach in an international school, Lord. And even though we can't even talk about all the details here publicly, we do pray for her protection. We pray for her transition into that country to continue to be smooth, and we pray that you would empower her to live in such a way that her life attracts people to your gospel. Pray that she would even find Christian community in this country with so few Christians. And Lord, we pray this morning that Shannon on her mission field and us on this mission field would remember your words in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, Lord, you tell us that we are more than conquerors through you who loved us. 
And Lord, even reminding ourselves of that love this morning, we do pray that that love would sweep through the Judson community as they grieve the loss of their two classmates. Pray that you would help the other two who are in the, the accident that happened, that, that they would continue to recover, Lord, that you would heal their bodies and, and that you would comfort the rest of the student body and faculty by your spirit and with your love that you would meet them in their grief with your presence. May they feel your love tangibly in this painful time. Now, Lord, this morning as we approach your word, would you shape us with the love of Jesus? Would the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts in this space be acceptable, pleasing, full of worship in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. And God's people said, amen. Before you marry a person, you should first make the music computer with slow internet service to see who they really are. The days of dial-up and, and even DSL are behind us, but how you handle the spinning icon on your computer is a, a true modern-day test of character under pressure. You don't really know a person until you see how they handle pressure or stress or, yes, slow internet. And you can't really love a person until you know them at their worst, even. Which is why Paul's explanation of the gospel in Romans 5, 6 through 8 is just so breathtaking. Here's what Paul says in Romans 5. He starts, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The God who knows us perfectly, through and through, who understands the depths of our souls, even though they have been steeped in sin, loves us truly because he knows us fully. He knows us at our worst. Not as righteous or good or, or put together or worthy of love according to human standards, but as sinners, enemies, rebels, and worthy of love according to his standards. This is because John 1, 1 John 4.16 tells us something different about God. It says that God is love. His very being is characterized by love. And so every love that we talk about, every love that we experience, all of that love needs to be measured against him who is love. God has seen us at our worst, not just when we throw a keyboard against a computer screen because the little icon keeps spinning, but when over and over again we have lived a life of rebellion against our creator. And the gospel tells us that while in that rebellion, God loved us in Christ. Christ died for the ungodly. While we were powerless in his perfect timing, because he loved us, Jesus died for us. If you haven't caught on yet, this morning we are talking about love. We are beginning a new series called Love Unfiltered, where we return to the pages of Scripture to create space for God to renew our minds and our hearts by defining what love truly is. The love that shone through the darkness on Good Friday and burst from the grave on Resurrection Sunday. The love that has shaped us and named us as a beautiful community with relationships that transcend cultural boundaries and transform cultural differences into gospel opportunities for celebration. The love that God has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and identifies us as followers of Jesus. Now, you might be wondering, okay, where are we in Scripture then? We're talking about love. That's pretty general. There are many places in Scripture that we can go to understand more of what this love looks like. 
But for the next eight weeks, what we're going to focus our time on is a particular chapter in the Bible that moves past understanding and reaches for the beauty of language to try and describe the love that characterizes God himself. The love that should characterize the people of God. So for the next eight weeks, we're going to be sitting in the rhythm and cadence of 1 Corinthians 13 to let God define love for us, not just in some general sense, but in a very specific sense for our community. After all, if we are a community of resurrected people united to Jesus and each other as a a beautiful community in our bold and and beautiful differences, the only real way that any of that, that is ever going to work is through love. So we start our deep dive of love in 1 Corinthians 13 by reading the first three verses this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn or for you tech ones, scroll in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 13. If you're joining us online, I also want to encourage you to pull your Bible off the shelf and read with us. And as we always do, would you stand for the reading of God's word if you're able? 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. God's word says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now let me give you some context about the people to whom this letter is written. A broken community, the Corinthian church, was marked by the casualties of division and power dynamics more than unity and the gospel of grace. In a society that was marked by extravagance trying to navigate the thriving metropolis of Corinth, the Christians this letter is addressed to, the church that it is addressed to, are experiencing before the very eyes the disintegration of their community, of their relationships with brothers and sisters for whom Christ died. They have allowed themselves to be characterized by pride rather than humility. They have been marked by self-centeredness. Insisting on their rights and and in so doing, Paul actually writing the letter says that they have been crushing their siblings in the faith. And they have continued to be discipled in the ways of the gods of their culture, trained to define love by free and unchecked passion. To look for any opportunity with those gods to gain secret access to forbidden knowledge. The Corinthian church had been disfigured by an anti-gospel way of life. By their old way of life. And that way of life was a danger to them was a danger to the gathering of God's people and to the life of the gospel in their midst, which is why Paul takes time in this letter to them to focus on love. Now, love is a difficult word to define these days. Today, it can mean just another way of expressing our preferences. I love coffee, which is very true. It could also mean something like an emotional experience of a crush, Right? It has holidays and cards and song after song after song and shows and movies. It is determined by a quid pro quo give and take in relationship. You give me this much and I'll give you that much. As long as you keep up your end of the bargain, we'll be good. In the end, love can start to feel a lot more self-centered than the pages of scripture define it. All about me and what I can get. And worst of all, love is portrayed on the big screen as fleeting 
ephemeral, like smoke. Here today, gone tomorrow, Cupid's arrow comes out of nowhere, you didn't see it coming, and then it can just disappear just as quickly. The Bible has a different way of talking about love. The wonder of true biblical love is that it cannot be limited by or restricted to preferences that shift back and forth. It is not determined by emotions that waver or disappear even. True biblical love, the kind of love that is distinctly Christian, is love that is found at the center of the good news of Jesus Christ. It is something that must be found at the center of the people of God. It is love that is founded upon and determined by God's love for us in Jesus. 1 John 4.10 tells it like this. It says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. True love is defined by God's self-sacrificial, self-giving, others-focused behavior towards us in Jesus. And yet somewhere along the way in this Corinthian church, this true love had been displaced from the center. Instead, they excelled in the practices of lust and envy, of greed, of competition and power plays, but they were deficient in love. The love of the gospel no longer characterized them. So, so here in the second half of Paul's letter to them, Paul takes some time to recalibrate them as a community by reestablishing what true love really is, what the true gospel really is. And he does it in the middle of a discussion about spiritual gifts. Now, starting in chapter 12, let me give you some more context about what's happening, and I'll explain why I'm doing this much here at the beginning. Starting in chapter 12, Paul begins to address something that had become a, a, a huge problem in the life of the Corinthian church. He starts talking about spiritual gifts. In some twisted way, they had built out a hierarchy of superiority from gifts that God had given them in order to love each other. They had twisted what God had given them into some kind of ranking system about who was more spiritual or important. And so Paul turns to the issue and reestablishes for them the identity of the gift giver in the first place. It is God himself who gives these gifts. It is the same God who gives these gifts. It is Jesus Christ himself. And not only that, he then establishes the purposes of the gifts, the common good, in order to build up each other as a community. Gifts from God that enabled the community of God to be gifts to others. And by the end of the chapter, he's hit the same truth over and over and over again. We are on the same team. We have different gifts, but the purpose of these gifts is to make the entire team better. And yet, when he gets to the end of chapter 12, if you're reading straight through, it almost feels like he pauses his discussion of spiritual gifts when he writes these words in 1231. Now, eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. But contextually, this is not a pause. This isn't some interruption that Paul just decided, okay, I'm going to start talking about love. What Paul is doing is actually very carefully reshifting not just his focus, but the focus of the Corinthian church. He is recentering them on the love of the gospel and away from the pecking order of spiritual gifts. And he does it by actually setting them up. And here's how he does that. He starts this setup by talking about what he calls greater gifts. Right? For a community that has been trying to figure out the ladder that they need to climb in order to be closer to God and higher than their neighbor... Their ears were perked up at anything that sounds like a greater gift. Give me some of that. Whatever will give me an advantage. He's explained, though, in that entire chapter 12, that they are members of the same body, the body of Christ. That they, the same spirit that unites them has blessed them with different gifts. Not so that they might lord it over one another, 
and measure their spiritual effectiveness by the kind or quality of their gift, but so that they might serve one another for the common good. And so while greater gifts might sound like spiritual hierarchy because of that word greater, what I think Paul is doing is that he's rebuilding their ladder and has them climbing in the opposite direction. Who, not who can be the most important, but who can serve the most. Who can be the servant of all. This is what it means to eagerly desire the greater gifts. Greater gifts are those that serve the community best and most directly. In other words, greater gifts are those that follow the most excellent way of love. Enter 1 Corinthians 13. What must lie under all of the gifts and the abilities that we have, Paul says, is true biblical love. So let me explain what that is. And so Paul goes through 1 Corinthians 13, and then we actually get to chapter 14 where he, re, like he jumps back into the discussion of spiritual gifts. And this is how he does it in the first verse of that chapter. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. Love paves the way for the gifts of the Spirit to operate like they were meant to, for the benefit of and the common good of God's people. The reason I did all of this context for us is not just because we're at the start of a new series, and I want us to have this as we go through each sermon, though that's also true. The reason I wanted to look at the verses, especially right before and right after the chapter that we'll be looking at, is because, like I've said before, but haven't said in a while, context matters. When we read God's word, we need to always consider the context of a passage. Context is what protects us from wandering off in whatever way we like, whatever direction we like, with God's word. And 1 Corinthians 13 is a really famous example of doing just that, of what happens when we wander from context. Read at weddings and used in Valentine's Day cards, this passage of Scripture has been taken out of its context and reduced to romantic love. Now, I inserted this sentence here just to say that if you read this at your wedding or wrote this to your significant other this February, I'm not knocking you. This is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and the beauty of the passage is easily apparent, and it certainly has implications for any relationship marked by love. But what we are going to do in this series, what I hope that we would do in this series by studying this chapter, is to open our eyes to how much more this chapter means when we expand the audience from a couple to a community. Paul's beautiful description of love is not just some random list of characteristics that he put together because they sounded good. It is a carefully crafted, anti-Corinthian way of life corrective in this particular letter. And we will see that in each sermon of the series, we're going to tie each of those passages to actually passages earlier in the letter that show the opposite of that love and how it was playing itself out in the Corinthian community. You see, when we remove this chapter from its context and we allow it to be reduced to romance alone, we cloud the countercultural and upside-down nature of God's people behind sentiment. We miss out on the specific challenges of God's word brought to the Corinthians and that Jesus now brings to us as we study his word. This chapter is for nothing less than the daily, regular, ongoing life of God's people as the church. This chapter is a masterclass in beautiful writing. It uses contrast and repetition and word pictures to communicate a simple truth that God's people must love one another. Simple, but sometimes really complicated to actually live out. And even though we're going to walk through this passage slowly over weeks, I actually want us to every week to be captured by the beauty and power of this text that Jesus spoke to Corinth and to us. Even as we analyze it piece by piece, I don't want to lose the beauty of it in the analysis of it. This love is not abstract or sappy. 
It is actual and sacrificial. It is, <laughs> Jesus, is, uh, Jesus isn't writing a greeting card, in other words. Jesus is writing to his people. He is laying out what life among his people looks like. What, it, what he meant when he commanded his people in John 13, like we've been studying, to love one another. This is practical poetry, the kind of beauty that rolls up its sleeves and explains the amount of work it takes to plant a breathtaking garden. And it all starts in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. That was all intro, but I promise I won't go as long. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, there are three hypotheticals that are meant to silence the shouting of spiritual comparison by revealing the true emptiness of a loveless life. And we'll look at these three hypotheticals one by one as Paul reveals that emptiness of a loveless life. So here's where we're going. The first hypothetical considers empty words. The second considers empty heads. And the third considers empty sacrifices. Without love, we may think our speech is heavenly, but we only reveal the hell of a loveless life. Without love, we may think our knowledge is powerful, but we only reveal the powerlessness of a loveless life. Without love, we may think our service is impressive to God and to others, but we only reveal a broke balance sheet of a loveless life. Empty words, empty heads, and empty sacrifices. And what you'll see is that each of these hypotheticals, even as I was reading it, I hope I conveyed that idea. They build up. They repeat three times the reality that, that empty actions betray empty hearts. What we do and how we do it matters because they reveal why we do what we do. And if your actions are empty, they show that your hearts are empty. And the first way they show that is with empty words. So let's dive right in. The first hypothetical situation that Paul tackles here is one that hits right at the heart of the Corinthian community. If you haven't noticed already, the spiritual gifts, but specifically the spiritual gifts of tongues. You see, chapter 12 has worked through various lists of gifts. And in chapter 14, Paul gets real specific and real focused on the gift of tongues. But here in chapter 13, Paul picks just one of the gifts to show something, probably the one that they were fighting about the most, if we're honest. And then he begins this hypothetical cadence. He writes in verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of, or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul begins this, this dive into true biblical love by using himself as an example. If I speak. And then he actually takes the argumentations he's probably heard from them or from people that reported about them. And he, he takes this argument about gift hierarchy and he goes, okay, let's turn it up a notch then. Let's say for argument's sake that I have the gift of tongues. And let's say not just that it helps me speak other languages that I haven't learned, but somehow that I get caught up in heavenly worship and I speak in a heavenly language. Let's say I bypass Jonathan and Sarah Jerez and I join an angel worship team and get access to an otherworldly experience. This elite club of those who are especially spiritual. Let's say all of that happens, but I am not living a life of love. Let's say I'm not known as loving, that I'm not characterized by love. Then the reality is that my angelic worship sounds less like heavenly music and more like empty noise. Paul's hypothetical image is actually meant to be shocking to the Corinthians, to us, to invite us into self-reflection, to wonder if this is how we functionally live in pursuit of spiritual power devoid of true love. 
These Corinthians were using their spiritual gifts, good gifts that God gave to each person to build up the church. I can't repeat that enough. The purpose of these gifts is for the good of the community, good gifts from God. They were using them as opportunities for them to build up their own spiritual reputation. God's good gifts became barriers in this community. Their divisive actions started to speak louder than their gift of tongues. And if you were to read through the story, you actually see, though they appear spiritual, even when they're exercising these gifts, 1 Corinthians 5 records this, that they have allowed and at times even supported anti-Christian practices like sexual immorality and idolatry and greed. Their use of God's good gifts sounds a lot more like tearing down than building up. And not only are they not taking care of the sin in their own community, they're also multiplying sin by misappropriating God's gifts. And so Paul explains that their misappropriation is not just some misunderstanding of the gifts, that they just don't know how to use them, but a fundamental miss on what motivates and defines these gifts, true biblical love. And he illustrates this miss with the analogy of a gong or a cymbal here. Now, I was thinking of getting one to put up here, and Hannibal said that would not be a good idea. So you can blame him for not being visually engaged Living a loveless life, no matter how impressive our use of language, even if it's so as impressive as to be heavenly, Paul says, has the same effect as smashing a gong. Big and loud, interruption, but without staying power as it echoes into silence. It's like making noise without making music. Even if the noise echoes, it's not music. It has no melody, harmony, or arrangement to make it beautiful. It is empty of everything that makes it music. But I want you to notice something that we sometimes miss in this illustration. Notice what Paul is illustrating with the gong or symbol. It's not the gift of tongues. Look at the text. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging symbol. It's not that the gift somehow just started functioning as noise, that it's unclear and difficult to understand, but I, if I am a loveless person, I am just a gong. A symbol, a chaotic noise with no purpose. The stakes are pretty high in Paul's very first hypothetical. I want you to see what is happening here because what Paul is doing, he's brilliantly shifting the focus from the gift itself, from the act itself to the actor, the one who is exercising the gift. He's trying to snap the Corinthians out of the temptation to be memorized by the power, the magic of words while they're ignoring the most important reality. Love. Without love, they're just empty words. Even if we went all the way and were somehow elevated to the realms of heavenly worship and the tongues of angels, without love, those supernatural words mean nothing. They are empty. Empty actions betraying empty hearts. And so the question then becomes in this very first verse is, how has this become true in our own community? Now, if you're new here, you might be wondering, okay, now they're talking about speaking in tongues. This is getting weird. But I want that question to actually reverberate in your head and your heart. Not just with the gift of tongues, but any communication that we have, really. I mean, it doesn't matter how eloquent or theological we are with words. Our speech, empty of love, means nothing. Do we speak lovingly to each other? Do we speak lovingly about each other? Do we speak harshly, tearing each other down? Do we leverage our ways of speaking against each other and somehow create a hierarchy because some of us know the spiritual inwards and some of us don't? 
Or how have we allowed our cultural preferences even, thinking about the last two sermons we've had, to determine what's proper or appropriate ways of speaking in the church? Is the way we talk empty of love, filled with the noisy chaos of crashing symbols, or is our talk filled with love? But words are not all that tempting in Paul's hypothetical cadence. Let me let you back up for air with all of those questions. Paul moves from empty words to empty heads in the next verse as he talks about what we know and what we do. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. So continuing his hypothetical situation, now Paul imagines himself possessing the gift of prophecy with the ability to reach the depths of all mysteries and having all knowledge. On top of that, he possesses some kind of special kind of faith that produces miracles with the ability to move mountain ranges. All of this, Paul says, everything humans can know and everything that has been revealed, faith to the extreme, all of it. If I were to have and exercise it without love, I would be nothing. It's not just that these gifts are not as important as love. That's not what Paul is trying to do. He's not trying to just knock them down a peg or two so that you actually properly situate their importance. It's that empty of love, they actually make someone insignificant. If we read the whole letter of the Corinthians, we see how deep this particular hypothetical situation cuts. You see, the Corinthians had allowed their pursuit of knowledge to lead them to arrogance To enable the destruction of the brothers and sisters in Christ. The brothers and sisters that the text actually says Jesus died for. Remember who they are. Why they are your brothers and sisters in the first place. Their pursuit of special spiritual wisdom had led to fights and grudge matches. In fact, it's been so bad that actually at the very beginning of the letter, Paul actually describes them as opposed to the gospel itself. So just like he did with the first hypothetical, Paul amplifies the problem to make a point. Notice in this verse how he repeats the word all, all mysteries, all knowledge, and the kind of complete faith that is special enough to move mountains. He builds up and up and up with the completeness of the picture that he is painting. In effect, Paul is constructing a fantasy world for us, right? He, he, he's raising us to these imagined heights of super secret spiritual understanding in this verse. Listen, Paul says, if I had all of this, Right? All of this special sp- spiritual knowledge and wisdom and the gift of prophecy with all of its power, if I had all the faith in the world, so much so that I could move mountains with it. The, the, you can almost feel as he's building this that the hypothetical cadence is moving us into the clouds where we're about to peek into heavenly knowledge where we go, what is this that Paul is talking about? And then out of nowhere, Paul drops us out of orbit. If I had all of it and still lacked love, I am nothing. It's not just that I would have nothing, but that I would be nothing. Lovelessness, regardless of a fantastical ability to participate in the heights of angel worship or or pierce the heights of secret wisdom, empties a person of anything that counts to God and among his people. In other words, empty actions betray empty hearts. So the question then lies before us, how is our pursuit of God distorted like this, obscured by right knowing at the expense of right living. To say it another way, even more specific to our text, how have we been so caught up in thinking rightly that we have not loved rightly? Theology and doctrine and what the Bible teaches about who God is matters. 
Right? It's not that understanding God is unimportant. It is that we have not truly understood God if we do not love him and love others. You see, some have taken the ideas of truth and love in Scripture and made them competitors rather than teammates. Some have even used doctrine to mask their own arrogance by calling themselves truth tellers. But the Bible is very clear, knowing everything about God, getting everything right on the test, and even being able to do amazing things for God, all of it ends up on the ash heap at the end of the day if you don't have love. So TVC, how have we allowed the dangerous ideas of truth without love to infiltrate the way we treat one another in this community? But we're not even done yet. Paul doesn't let up in his hypothetical cadence. I've been splitting it up, asking questions, but Paul goes back to back to back, and now we come to the third verse. Empty words and empty heads actually make room now for empty sacrifices. Look at the text, verse 3. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Hypothetically, let's say I give everything I own to the poor to help them. Let's say I go so far as to sacrifice not just my property but my body, and I do all of this without love, Paul says that the ledger will still stand at zero. In other words, without love, serving others mutates into self-serving. Without love, sacrifice devolves into self-glory. Now, when we're talking about boasting here, I don't want you to misread this text even, because in the next Uh, letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, he actually talks about boasting. He talks about boasting in his weakness and persecution and suffering, kind of the things that he's talking about here. The problem here, like the problem in all the other hypotheticals, has never been the action itself. The problem has always been the loveless life of the one who acts. Hypothetically speaking, Paul has escalated from a fantastical picture of angelic worship to fantastical views of the heights of spiritual understanding and now to the fantastical visual of giving everything away, even to the point of giving up your body. And he escalates from extreme to extreme to extreme to show just how extremely distorted a loveless life really is. Specifically in the third hypothetical, we see the actions of someone who who, who looks at everything that they own packs it up in bags, and brings it to the nearest homeless shelter to give, to help people. We see the actions of someone who takes things far enough to make the ultimate sacrifice of martyrdom, and all of it adding up to zero if love is absent. Again, providing for the poor and being willing to suffer for the sake of Christ are good, just like spiritual gifts are good. Paul's life is marked by sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And he's going to teach others to do the same. He's going to teach the Corinthians to do the same. He will continue to encourage the Corinthian believers to use their spiritual gifts, to want them. The problem is not the actions, but the life from which those actions flow. What we do matters, but what we do is not enough. Our motives matter too. Nothing, no matter how amazing it is, No matter how important it makes us feel, no matter how fast the church is growing or how incredible the worship is, no matter how brilliant Eric preaches or how many CareFest projects we complete, none of that can make up for a lack of love in our community. It doesn't doesn't matter how much money we give, how many missionaries we support, how many programs we we run, or how many people actually read the Bible reading plan that we put out. If we don't have love, we miss entirely the point of being God's people. We miss completely the point of the church. We absolutely miss the point of the gospel itself. So TVC, how have we let our love slip in our service? 
How have we drained our help of love and left it empty of what it really matters? Do we serve because it feels good or because it sounds good or because it makes us look good? If love is not the motivation, the context of our service, the goal of, our, of all that we do, that service counts for nothing. Without love, it's meaningless. So are we serving meaninglessly, TVC? Will our service, even this weekend at Carefest, be filled with meaning because it will be filled with love? Will serving in our life groups, serving throughout the week, our neighbors and our community, count for nothing or count for the gospel? Because it is gospel love that makes everything count. Empty actions betray empty hearts, but hearts filled with gospel love make every action we take significant for the building up of the body of Christ. You see, when love is absent in our community, in our worship, in our service, it doesn't just mean that we're missing something, an ingredient we need to put back into the community. It means we are actually being changed for the worse. We're devolving. We're mutating. We're becoming hollow instruments. We're becoming nothing. We are gaining nothing for the acts of service, for all of our hard work. TVC, the absolute necessity of gospel love and its ability to make everything count must serve as our anchor to Jesus in this community. Love must motivate everything we do, from the songs that we sing, to the time we spend together, to the way we pray, to how we serve, to what we study, to how we reach people for Jesus. All of it must be founded in and controlled by love. Love must be the context of all of our relationships. We serve in kids' life classrooms and on the tech team and on the worship team and as ushers and greeters because we love each other. We bring meals to families in hard times. We make phone calls to people that are stuck at home. We pray for each other as we think of each other. We cry with each other in times of grief and suffering. We sit with each other when there are no words. And yes, we celebrate God's goodness with each other and care for one another because we love each other. Because God first loved us. We gather in life groups together, not because we have some kind of shared hobby, but because we love each other because God first loved us. And we love each other. And he, God enables us to love one another, even the person in the group. And you know where I'm going with this, who has an annoying voice. Who talks too much. Or doesn't talk at all. Or seems to always have more and more problems to pray for. Or seems to have a few rough edges around them. Or a lot of rough edges around them. Or any other thing that we can think of that would affect our ability to love them. Love is the context in which we live our lives within the people of God. Period. Full stop. No matter what. Love is also the goal. This is part of Paul's problem with the Corinthians in this letter. They had changed out the goal that God had given them. No longer was it the love of Christ. Now it was the status of spirituality through gifts or knowledge or faith or service. TVC, have we changed the goal of our community, of our lives here? Is love the goal of our lives or something else? It starts right here within the people of God. How is God calling us to better express his love within this community? I've named a few, but I don't, I don't want my suggestions to restrict the creativity that God has blessed you with for the good of our community. So find new ways to love each other and then do them. You don't need to send me an email to figure out how to do it. You don't need to ask my permission. God has given you permission to love each other 
within this community and God has placed you in this community to love each other. And this is what is so radical about the gospel. Right, the good news of Jesus, the foundation of the love that we have been talking about, is so upside down. 1 John 3, 16 through 18 tells it like this. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We know love because of the sacrifice of Jesus. He showed us what true biblical love is by dying on a cross for us. And over and over and over again in Scripture, God reminds us that the love he is calling us to is love that has already been shown to us in Christ. Again, in 1 John 4, 7 through 11, we read this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We know love because God is love. And because of his love, we love one another in the same way that he loved us. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to hear this sermon in reverse. Because all of the things that I've said here at the end are actually the beginning for you. Right? You cannot do what I have called us to do in this moment, to love others, without first understanding and accepting the reality that you have been loved by God. And that's where each and every one of us who claim the name of Jesus started. Where each and every one of us who claim the name of Jesus restart every morning. The good news that God loves us. That even though that we have rebelled against him and gone our own way, even though we decided to rule our own lives and dictate what we think is good and right, naming ourselves as his enemies by rejecting his ways, he loves us. He loves you. He created you to love him, to follow his ways, but we, like the first humans, think that we know best. And so we live our lives as if we are God. This way of life, this rebellion is summarized in the Bible, in God's word, with the word sin. And the Bible says that our sin is what keeps us from God. It destroys the bridge to relationship with him. It distorts us by disconnecting us from our creator. As just the just creator king, he cannot let rebellion slide. And so sin must be punished. I mean, how could he be just if he didn't actually punish the rebellion? But This just and holy God who is characterized by love, who we just read, that is love, did something unexpected. Something hard to even fully grasp. He decided to take the punishment on himself. He wouldn't let sin slide, but he, he was going to figure out a way to build the bridge back to us. Becoming human, the Son of God took on flesh. The Son of God lived the life we were supposed to live in complete obedience to God's law and God's ways. We know him as the name Jesus. And when he was betrayed and condemned at the end of his life, because he did not sin in any way during his life, it is absolutely crystal clear that he is condemned not by his own sin, but on the basis of our sin. His punishment was actually him taking our punishment willingly on his shoulders on our behalf. He was crucified. 
nailed to a cross. And the Bible says that in that moment, he actually became sin for us. The full punishment of all of our sin, past, present, and future, was laid on him at the cross, and he paid it because he loved us. Because he loves you. This is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice, to die for our sins. That atoning sacrifice means that Jesus is the one who truly gives up his body. Not to boast, but to pay for our sins. The cross means that Jesus looked around and counted up all that he had, and he gave it all up, put it in a bag, and came to us who were morally bankrupt, who were morally poor, impoverished by sin, to save us. He gave up his body to death and gave all that he had because of love. And in this act, Jesus reveals the depths of God's heart for us. Not that God has been trying for so long to figure out a way to make sure he can punish us, but that God has been trying for so long and has been working all the story in this entire book, in all of history, to build a way back to us. And that that love is not some secret knowledge of the divine that you have to figure out, that you have to read the right tea leaves to get to. The mystery of God, the knowledge of the true God has been communicated to us in Jesus at his cross. He loves us. And that love is available for all who have faith in him. We don't need some kind of special faith that can displace mountain ranges. We need simple faith that acknowledges that we are who God says we are. Sinners in rebellion to him. God's creations broken and distorted by sin, but loved more than we could ever imagine. Faith that says God is who he says he is. Our creator the only true God who who sent his only son to die for us in order to make a way back to him. Faith that acknowledges our sin and trust in the Savior. This is love. Not that we need some kind of special angelic worship or access to God or special language, but that in Christ, God has spoken clearly and completely. He loves us. So this morning, if you're not a Christian, my question to you is, do you hear him saying that? He loves you. I mean, right where you are. So even as I say this, I want to make sure you know, you don't have to clean yourself up to come to him. You don't have to make amends or right your wrongs. You don't have to make any other payment. You don't have to have it all together. In fact, coming to Jesus means that you say you don't have it all together. All you have to do is come. Come to the one who showed definitively that he loves you. The Bible says that after dying on a cross, Jesus three days later came back from the dead, proving that his death was not just some nice gesture that he was making for for people, just saying, hey, this is a nice thing to do. I gave up my life. No, what he did is he started to make a way back to God. It was the beginning of a path back to God. Tell him you believe what he says, that you have sinned and that you need him. Tell him that you believe that he loves you, that he came back to life for you that you trust in him as your God. Tell him that he is your king and your savior. Now, even as I say all that, I understand if you have more questions, if you need some more time. So what I want to say to you then is, stop me after the service. Let's talk. Anyone you've seen serving up here in the back, greeting at the doors, stop them after the service and talk about Jesus. We would love to help you know the Jesus that we've come to know. Interrupt conversation. This is more important. But this morning, if you are a Christian, there are two things I want you to do. First, I want you to be ready by the thing that I just said, to love and serve anyone here who approaches you to talk about Jesus. Because it's not just about the TVC team communicating the gospel. 
But the second thing I want you to remember is what it was like for you when you first came to Jesus. That you would remember what it was like to be captured by his love. What it's like for you every time you learn more and more and more about the love of Jesus. You see, we're a community that needs to be controlled by, compelled by love. If you do not have love, if our lives are not marked with, characterized by, and defined by love, then what are we even doing here? I mean, we've missed the point of being followers of Jesus. We are on a path with empty actions, betraying empty hearts, but that's not the path that we have to be on in Christ. That's not the path that we are supposed to be on in Christ. We love because he first loved us. Do we love like he loved us? Do we love each other like he loved us? Do we love those that we come in contact like he loved us? Will we live empty lives lacking love or will we fill our lives with gospel love, true biblical love, marking us as God's people? Now you might be saying, Eric, okay, well you just talked a lot about love, but can you please define what that looks like? Can you give me some characteristics? Well, I am intentionally leaving you on a cliffhanger here at the end that you have to come to the next eight weeks because that's the point of this series. But I needed to lay the groundwork that this is all based on Founded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not just love that we show each other as partners in life. This is love that we show each other as communities, partners for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray that this might be true of us as a community, TVC? Jesus, we confess this morning that we love you. And we know the only reason that we love you is because you have loved us first. That you are the one who defines love. And so this morning we pray that you would continue to shape us with love as you define it. Please don't allow us to become resounding gongs or clanging cymbals. Do not let us devolve into nothing or gain nothing for all of our service to you. By your spirit, may all that we do be done because of love. In the context of love, may may love be our goal. True biblical love. Love that gives up everything for others. That doesn't try to create a binary between truth and love, but integrates it like Jesus integrated, weaves it together. This morning, as we continue to sing, sing, we proclaim that we love you. We remind ourselves that your love drives us to love each other. And we plead, we beg that you would enable and empower us with the same kind of love that came from heaven, aimed at a cross, and came back to life three days later to give us new life. Would you help us to love like you have loved us? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.